Let's turn together in Scripture to Psalm 119. The next section, remember, we have uh, sections that correspond to letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We've looked at Aleph, Beit, now Gimel, beginning in verse 17. There are eight verses, ending in verse 24. I'm reading out of the New King James Version, which I always do. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke, rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. This is God's word. He is speaking through it, and he speaks without error. He speaks with power, and may it be so in our lives today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God is living and active. It is powerful. It is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Lord, let it divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow today. May it penetrate our hearts and do heart surgery. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In verse 19, the psalmist says, I am a stranger in the earth. And that's really, to me, is the theme of this particular section of Psalm 119. The Christian life is a pilgrim life. We're strangers in this world, passing through the wilderness of this world. We are on a journey to the heavenly city that is above. The pilgrim life is not an easy one, but God in his word provides all the resources that we need uh, to stay on on this path, to keep going on the path uh, that he lays out for us. And in this third section of Psalm 119, there is this new theme, this theme of difficulty of living as a stranger and a pilgrim in a world that is opposed to the faith. It would be one thing if we had a path laid out for us uh, and no obstacles, and we just walked on this smooth and level path. But we know that's not the way it is. <clears throat> we have to face opposition. We, uh, we have trials and tribulations and troubles. Now, that's not something that's unique to, to Christians, is it? Uh, everyone goes through some of these things. But Uh, Trials and problems not being unique to us, and yet there's something unique in the way that God works through those trials and those problems in our lives. He makes them work for good. He makes them work for our sanctification. He humbles us by them and teaches us. Uh, In addition, as believers, again, we have divine resources to deal uh, with our troubles. that the world doesn't have. We have the Word of God, especially. This is the great resource that, that God has given us. The great uh, 
to me, it is the number one means of grace, and every other means of grace uh, flows from this word. So uh, through this word, he will guide, guard, and direct us on our dangerous, treacherous journey that we're on. So if you have any troubles, any problems whatsoever, then this sermon is for you. That includes all of us, (laughs) doesn't it? What do you need in your journey? In this difficult journey that you and I are on, first thing we need, well, I'll say there's three things that we need today, three words. We need life, we need illumination, and we need counsel. And the first is life. And verse 17 is a prayer, and the psalmist says, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. It's a bold prayer. Uh, He says, be bountiful. Uh, Deal bountifully. Bounty is something that's, it's, it's a generous, over-the-top thing, isn't it? Uh, he's asking that God would be very generous toward him, uh, to give him, him an abundance of grace, an abundance of help and assistance. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever feel a little bashful in asking God uh, for too much, perhaps, from the Lord? Uh, we, we all know that we don't deserve anything from the Lord. We deserve nothing from the Lord at all. Um, and, uh, and often we're of little faith as well, uh, thinking that, well, I shouldn't ask too much because I don't deserve anything. And then it's like, well, I don't have enough faith to believe that God would do much anyway. Uh, in the previous church that I pastored, one of the elderly members used to say to me almost every time that I visited her, and she would say, she, she said, I just feel bad, like I'm a, uh, being a bother to the Lord, you know, bringing all my needs to Him. I have so many needs and everything. And I would try to encourage her to say, You're not being a bother to the Lord. He can handle all your needs and more. And in fact, He desires for you to bring them all to Him. Uh, he loves it when we do that. I said I would get back to John Newton. Uh, and, and a couple of his hymns today, another hymn that he wrote that we didn't sing is called Behold the Throne of Grace. And, and one of the lines from that hymn, it says, My soul, ask what thou wilt, thou canst not be too bold, since his own blood for thee he spilt, where else can he withhold? And then another hymn that we have sung in the past, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Can never ask too much from God, who is infinite, eternal, and has such a large supply of grace. Now, pilgrims, you see, need a large supply of grace for their journey. Uh, and God's more than willing to supply us with what we need. So we need to pray boldly as the psalmist prayed, deal bountifully with your servant. Lord, bless me and bless me bountifully. Now, he was praying boldly, but you notice he said, I am your servant. So there's humility there. He understands that he is but a servant. And so there's implication there, and he goes on to make it more clear, but I'm your servant. Deal bountifully with me that I might better serve you. That's the point. So this is not a selfish prayer at all. 
And he's praying that God would deal bountifully again, not because he deserved it, not because he earned it. Uh, no, this is a plea for the free grace of God. It's, it's based not on merit whatsoever, but he's asking God to be merciful to him, uh, an undeserving sinner. Deal bountifully with me, not on the basis of, of my goodness, but on the basis of your goodness, Lord. And, and, and here's another theme that we see in this section is the goodness of God. We, we talk about the attributes, the characteristics of God, and the goodness of God is one of, I say, the primary attributes, attributes of God. It's one of those, certainly, that, that means a lot to us because um, if, if it were absent, think of a, try to imagine a God without goodness. Try to imagine God without goodness. You cannot do it. Because everything that we think about God is, is there's going to be goodness involved. The very first prayer I learned as a child was, God is great, God is good. Uh, and the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Someone came to Jesus once and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, no, 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 wait a minute. There's only one who is good. There's none who is good. But God. And God is good. He is supremely good. His goodness is revealed in many ways. It's revealed in creation. Why did God create the world? He created the world, you and I included, so that you and I, as those who are created in his very image, would be the beneficiaries of of his bountiful goodness. God made human beings, male and female, that we might be the recipients of his bountiful goodness. There's also the providence of God, right? His providential care over what he has created, especially does he care for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Stephen Sharnock, in his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, defines the goodness of God as his inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creatures. Uh, Burkhoff, we studied Burkhoff uh, a, a couple of years ago. In his systematic theology, he writes that God's goodness is that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. Do you believe in the goodness of God? The goodness of God. God is generous. He is good. He is gracious. He is a bountiful God. Do you believe that he is so good that he would pour out his bounty on your life today? We sometimes think, well, I know God you know, has blessed others. I don't think he would bless me because I'm not much, uh, much of a Christian I'm not deserving. Yes, we all know that. Uh, but, you know, again, we've we, we, we got to remember that God wants to bless us. And he has a reason for that. He wants to give us life. Uh, by nature, we're dead in sin. That's, that's the bad news. But the good news, God resurrects the dead. He's made us alive in, in Jesus Christ. And so we should pray especially for spiritual life. We know we have physical life, at least if, we, if we're thinking, if we can think that, we know we're still physically alive. 
But we are praying for life that we might live and keep God's word. So that, that's, the, that's the bottom line for us. Uh, why does God keep you alive? Why does he give you spiritual life so that you might keep his word? He has an unlimited supply of grace. Think of what he's already done today. He's come to encourage you, to, to fill you with his spirit, to forgive your sins, to sustain you, to bless you, uh, to allow you, enable you to experience his abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So the Lord, if the Lord promised abundant life, do you think it's okay to pray that God would give you abundance in your spiritual life? Absolutely. Don't pray for a little. Pray for a lot of this spiritual and abundant life. And this life, of course, comes to the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who sanctifies us, purifies us, revives us, empowers us, and so forth, empowers us to obey and do the will of God. In Psalm 13, 6, we read, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So reflect for just a moment uh, on how the Lord has already answered this prayer in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ, he's already dealt bountifully with you. And the very least Christian has been blessed with the untold riches of grace found in Christ. And the riches of this world cannot even compare to the riches that we have in him. So if you are in Christ, you have an abundance of grace, abundance of salvation, life, hope. You have an inheritance laid up in heaven for you. And these covenant blessings are given to every single child of their heavenly Father. And so may we be so bold to ask for the blessings that God has promised to give us in his word. If you pray for life, expect that you will live. And what does this life consist of? Well, it consists of, as, as Paul the Apostle said, for me to live as Christ. So if God gives you life, it's so that you can live for Christ. Love Christ. And he said, if you love me, you'll obey my command. So that first prayer is a prayer for an abundance, a prayer for bounty. It's a prayer for life. Secondly, what does the pilgrim need in his or her journey, secondly, we need illumination. We've been given the Word of God, written, the Scriptures, and we can and should read it often. Uh, we should hear it preached often, and we should meditate on the Scriptures daily. But when we do read the Bible, we need to, we need to pray. We need to ask God to do something, and that's in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. We pray for life because by nature we're spiritually dead. We pray uh, for illumination because by nature we are blind to the things of God. We can't by ourselves cannot understand what God's word is saying, what it means. But Jesus said this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't understand it. Uh, but with the new birth that God brings about by the Spirit. The Lord opens our eyes to see the truth of His Word and to, to know how to enter His kingdom. But after we enter the kingdom, after we see how to enter that kingdom, 
Uh, that's only the beginning. We need to keep asking the Lord for more light, for more understanding, to open our eyes, to see more wondrous things from his word. And so think about, you know, if we're going to keep God's word, we need to understand it. If we have a misunderstanding, we won't be able to keep it rightly. But the same thing is true in reverse. In order to understand God's word, you need to keep it. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So you see, both feet off the other. If, if you pray and have understanding, you'll be enabled to do, to do his will. And if you do his will, you'll have a good understanding. You say, why, do, why are the scriptures so fuzzy to me? I don't understand. Well, maybe you're not doing what you already know. Uh, obey what he teaches you. Believe what he teaches you. And then uh, you'll have better understanding. And pray for more understanding, and then you'll have a greater ability to do what he says. So every time we read the scriptures, every time we go to the Bible, every time we hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or whatever, we should pray, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your life. It's a prayer for illumination of the Spirit of God. And to, to pray for illumination is not to ask for new revelation outside of or apart from the Bible, it's to ask God to, to shed light on what he has already revealed in his written word. So we pray for comprehension, but, but not just comprehension. We are praying that we would be filled with awe when we come to the Bible. And so often we're not, you see. And I think that's because we're not praying this kind of prayer. Um, if we don't pray this prayer in earnest as we come to the Bible, we're going to miss out, you see, on the wondrous things in Scripture. The wondrous things in the Bible cannot be seen, cannot be discerned except by divine assistance. Well, what are the wondrous things? And, and notice it says the wondrous things from your law. Well, John Calvin notes this. He says, we infer that not only the Ten Commandments are included in the term law, but also the covenant of eternal salvation with all its provisions which God has made. These, these various terms, eight main terms that are used in Psalm 119 for the word of God, really are uh, a very broad terms. When, when the Bible says law, it's not just referring, like Calvin said, it's not just referring to the Ten Commandments, uh, especially in this psalm. He's talking about the entire Word of God, and especially, of course, uh, the, as, as Calvin mentioned, the covenant of salvation. And what did Jesus say as he spoke to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? He says, the Scriptures are all about me. You search the Scriptures, but they're about, and they're about me. And so that's one of the, the, the most wondrous thing in Scripture is the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, his person and his finished work. In Christ, the Bible says, are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. The Bible says he is the end of the law for those who believe. And when we put our faith in Jesus, uh, he sends us back to the law that we might learn how we might please him. Verse 19 is another prayer. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments 
from me. Charles Bridges in his commentary, wonderful, wonderful commentary on Psalm 119. I would urge you, if you're looking for a devotional book, order Charles Bridges' commentary on Psalm 119. Each verse is a daily devotional, just about two and a half pages. Um, and just of excellent, heart-searching commentary and application of the Word of God. But he says, uh, the pilgrim spirit is the pulse of the soul. All of us are traveling to eternity. And as we travel on this glorious journey to the eternal city of God, we need direction. We need guidance, don't we? Uh, And that's why he says, do not hide your commandments from me. Don't hide them. You see, commandments are like signs on the side of the road uh, to heaven. And sometimes those commandments say, this is the way. Go here. Sometimes they say, wrong way. Turn around. And we need both of those signs. Hebrews 11.13 tells us that the Old Testament people of God confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hebrews 13.14, the writer concludes, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So we are traveling, and we thank God uh, for the signs. Don't hide the signs. Uh, Lord, let us know the way in which we should go. First of all, remember, this world is not our home. Uh, we we uh, are strangers and pilgrims here. Do you feel that? Do you ever feel that? I, I would think in today's culture, if you're a Christian at any level of sanctification, you feel that you are a stranger because the, the world has gone really uh, crazy and the world is very strange. Certainly we are strangers now in such a world. But do you love the world? Do you want to stay here? Uh, would you, if you could live forever on, on, in this world as it is now, would you, would you do that and not have to die? I wouldn't. This is, this is a rotten world. See, we get so used to it. It's like, you know, if you lived in a garbage dump, after a while, you would get used to the stench, wouldn't you? Um, well, that's kind of the, where we are. Uh, this world is like. Living in a dump, and we we forget that. And so we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we should be able to sing with sincerity this praise chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. So if you're a pilgrim, you, you can relate to what verse 20 says, My soul breaks with longing for your judgments. At all times. The path of a pilgrim is one of longing. Uh, longing for his judgments. Longing for the word. For communion with the God of the word. With Jesus. Indeed, longing to see the embodiment, the fulfillment of the law. To see Jesus himself. And so we need to pray. Uh, we need to pray not only to, to see wondrous things from the law, we need to pray for a, a greater and more intense desire for the Word. Why? Because we need guidance and direction on the way to heaven. And remember that Jesus is the way. 
Right? Whatever question you have, Jesus is the answer. Okay? He's the way. Follow him. You'll never go wrong. Because he kept the commandments perfectly. He would never lead you to disobey his own, very own word. Follow his example. Uh, who will also keep you, depend on him to keep you in the way of his commandments. Remember, Jesus is called the forerunner. He lived this pilgrim life more than anyone. He was a stranger in the earth. Follow him and trust him who went before us. He's already entered heaven. He's shown us the way. Again, he is the way. But if we obey his word at all times, we'll stay on that narrow path, that pilgrim way. Lastly, from the passage today, what does a pilgrim need for his or her journey, we need counsel. We need wise counsel. As we know, the pilgrim path is not an easy way. Jesus said difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. We, we've got to count the cost, Jesus said. It's not an easy life. And part of that difficulty, of course, is the contempt, the opposition that we face from an unbelieving world. So this final section, these last four verses, are a recognition of the fact uh, that the world is not our friend to help us on the way to heaven. They're trying to turn us away. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, remember when Christian decides to leave the city of destruction and he and he and he's trying to leave. He's getting ready to leave and everyone's convincing him. No, 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 don't leave. You need to stay here with us. And he says, no, this city is going to be destroyed. I'm going to follow. I'm seeking the Lord. So he goes on. And that's our, our attitude. Um, and so the psalmist needs counsel. And, and because, because there, is, uh, there is an enemy, uh, not only the devil, but the world. Uh, the whole world is against the Christian. Verse 21, you rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. So he's identifying who his enemies are. He's identifying the opposition. They are the proud. Uh, they are the ones who, who are cursed, who stray from God's commandments. See, if we, if we see the world in its true colors, we'll be more ready to deal with it. And though the psalmist had longed for God's judgments, not everyone felt the same. Did they? No. His heart was see. His heart was broken with this longing to be, to know and to do what God had revealed in His Word. He had a humble and a contrite heart, and the Bible says these things God will not despise. But what will God do with the proud? It says He will rebuke the proud. And the problem is, you know, the reality is the humble person, the Christian, deserves. Uh, God's wrath just as much as the proud person who has never been humble. Uh, the difference is uh, the proud person never acknowledges his need of the grace of God. You see, the difference between, between us and the proud is that, that we understand that we need God's grace and that without his grace we cannot be saved. James 4, 6 says that he gives more grace. He says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. 
So in the, in the face of proud sinners who criticize and condemn us for our faith, try to dissuade us from our faith, uh, it's, it's easy for us to respond in kind uh, and, and to hurl insults at unbelievers. I'm tempted to do that all the time because when I read some of the things I read today, but the psalmist is reminding himself not to go down that road. Because God rebukes the proud. And so we cannot become like those who are opposing us. Uh, the pilgrim way, you see, is, is a pathway of humility, of trust in the Lord. Uh, uh, trusting in Him to deal with our accusers. We looked at that when we, we studied First Samuel. And, and King David was being hounded continually by King, well, before David was king, but by King Saul. And David refused, if you remember, to stoop to the level of proud King Saul. He would not put his hand against Saul. He would not uh, be proud and rise up against him. He let the Lord deal with Saul. You see, there's no room for pride in the heart of the Christian. We know that, that pride was the sin of the devil. And that pride comes before a fall. And here's what Scripture says. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did receive it? Or had not received it as a gift of God. In other words, everything we have of any, you know, that's good. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father who doesn't change. So out of gratitude, a humble Submissive obedience is, is entirely fitting. The proud person, on the other hand, strays from God's commands. How do you know? Sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, pride and humility. Well, the proud person strays from God's commands. The humble person obeys. It tries to stay the course. And notice, again, the psalmist leaves it to God to rebuke the proud. And generally speaking, so should we. Especially when it concerns personal attacks, we need to let the Lord deal with our accusers <clears throat> and, uh, verse, and pray, as verse 22 instructs us. Remove reproach from me and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Lord, you be my defender. Lord, you repair my reputation if it's been damaged. And so think about, again, David. David was slandered by many, and sometimes he deserved it. Jesus was slandered, and he never deserved it. But he understands the sting of harsh words and false accusations. Spurgeon said the best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. He said our own attempts at clearing ourselves are usually failures. Uh, verse 23 Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. This indicates that the psalmist, whoever it was, was a man of uh, power, position, and so forth, because otherwise princes would not worry about a person who was a, a, you know, just an ordinary citizen. This person was a leader, and um, princes, others were speaking against him. <clears throat> What should you do when you become 
the brunt of criticism? Well, the first thing you need to do is to examine your own heart because some of it is probably true. It may only be a very small portion of what is being said about you. Even if 95% of what's being said about you is untrue, if there's 5% that has some truth to it, then you and I need to own it. We need to humbly admit our faults. It can be hard, it can be hard to do, especially when, when the vast majority of what's being said against us is false. It can be very hard to do, <clears throat> but we need to do it. We need to confess it to God, to others, if, if we have any sin at all. Secondly, in the face of accusations and, and criticisms, instead of constantly turning over in our thoughts and minds of what this person has said, what this person has done against us, right? We can, we can rehearse that so often until we get such a bad state of mind that we are very discouraged. Instead, we do what, what the psalmist says, but your servant meditates not on what they're saying and what they're doing, but on the Word of God, on your statutes. Meditate on your statutes. Uh, verse 24 is the answer, you see, to criticism and opposition. Your testimonies are also are my delight and my counselors. God's testimonies are the psalmist's counselors. The Bible says there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors, and in Scripture, there is, we have a multitude of counselors. <clears throat> in the Hebrew, where he says, your testimonies are my counselors, it reads literally, they are the men of my counsel. Instead of looking to the wisdom of human beings to men, uh, the psalmist looked to the Word of God. And often, when we get into trouble... And we need wisdom. What do we do? We turn to other people. Uh, we turn to the counsel of friends, maybe to pastors, maybe to professional counselors to get their advice. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I would encourage you to do that at times. But before you do that, next time you need counsel, I would urge you first to get alone with God's counselors, God's men of counsel. Abraham, David, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and Jesus, who Isaiah said was the wonderful counselor. So the Bible, the Bible alone is where true counsel comes from. If you come to me, I hopefully am going to give you biblical counsel. But you have to judge what I say. I, I may err. I certainly have and can err. But the Bible never errs. So we need to receive it. If it does come through human beings, that's okay. We need to still, we need to examine it but, and then receive it. But it's the word that gives us the wisdom to walk in the pathway of the pilgrim. Okay, it's a straight and narrow path, but it's a path that leads all the way to glory. Don't you want to stay on that path? Don't you? I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but you can lose your way as you go. You may and you will get back on the path if you get lost, but far better. Read Pilgrim's Progress, and you'll see you don't want to get off the path. 
because you only get into worse and worse trouble. <clears throat> Again, I'll, uh, I'll quote from John Newton's hymn, Come, my soul, thy suit, prepare. Because it's got a stanza for pilgrims. And I'll close with it. While I am a pilgrim here, let thy love my spirit cheer. As my guide, my guard, my friend, lead me to my journey's end. That's the way. That's the way of the pilgrim. Let's stay on that way. Let's follow it according to God's word. Let's pray.